The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and join me in God's Word. Take your, your own personal copy of God's Word. Isn't that nice to say? Your own copy of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 2. We have made our way after 16 sermons through Romans 1 to get to Romans chapter 2. And I was just telling Kim on the front row, I hope we can get through the first five verses this morning. Lord willing, we will. And if not, I hope you'll come back in the future. Um, I, uh, I have to confess, this is just, uh, every week studying Romans, I just, I don't want to stop studying. I don't want to leave this passage. I feel like every passage screams, why don't we stay here for a couple of months? Every paragraph screams that. This is the deep end of the pool, and uh, I feel like we've been, been thrown in sometimes without any floaties in just a wonder at the amazing intricacy of the gospel. You see that graphic that's up behind me that we put uh, together at the very beginning? Looking at the clock, an automatic watch that, that has all these intricate gears that drive that watch, and that's like looking at the gospel through the book of Romans. There are so many moving parts, main strings, springs, minor springs, gears and rotations, and, and yet at the end of the day, it just tells us how to tell time. And we get to see the intricacies of the gospel and at the end of the day, what it means to be right with God. This morning, we're going to look at when guilty sinners pass shameful judgment. Follow along as I read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you, Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge one another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. If you're going to study the Bible, if you love the Word of God, if you're going to be a student of Scripture, it's imperative to understand the Jew and Judaism. Said another way, to study and understand the Bible is to study and understand the Jew and Jewishness or Judaism, the nature of the Jewish faith. The bottom line is God made a promise. God made a promise, get this, to a pagan, to a then Gentile named Abraham. And that promise was to this man to be the father of a nation. He said he would bless Abraham and his descendants and that the whole world would be blessed by his offspring, ultimately culminating in a man who would be God, who would save the world from sin, namely the Jewish Messiah. 
The whole world will be blessed through the line of Abraham. Abraham, then, is the father of the Hebrews, the father of the Jews. Abraham was chosen, by the way, not because he was particularly handsome, not because he was pleasing God, not because he was anything special. But as we'll see in the coming studies, he was chosen for one reason. God chose him. He was loved for one reason. God chose to love him. In the mysterious, incalculable riches of God's mysterious providence, he said, Abraham, you are mine. And Abraham had faith in what God said, and God counted that faith. The the English word is reckoned, imparted to him righteousness before God because of his faith. Not because of what he had done, but because he had believed in God and the promise. That promise, by the way, is given generally in Genesis chapter 12 and specifically with regard to the heir that Abraham would have in Genesis 15. We call this the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham's offspring would ultimately, though, be known as Jews. How do we get the term Jews? That's important because from this point on in the book of Romans, Paul is going to refer to the Jews and Judaism. And we have to pull the car over and understand what we're talking about when we understand the term Jew. Where does the term come from? It actually is a shortened form of the word Judah, the tribe of Judah, the patriarch Judah. Now, at first, the term Jew was a designation given to only those who belonged to the southern tribe in Israel. Remember, there were were two kingdoms, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called two tribes, called Judah. The northern uh, kingdom was ten tribes, called Israel. It gets a little confusing. Ultimately, the southern kingdom would be taken away because of God's judgment, or unfaithfulness, to Babylon. Also, the northern kingdom would be taken away to Assyria through God's judgment. We call that pre-exile, taken to Babylon and to Israel, and post-exile after they came back and repopulated the land. You'll hear scholars, theologians, you'll hear hopefully as we move through uh, Romans, me say pre- and post-exilic understanding of the Jewish nation. After the Jews returned from Babylon, the southern tribe returned from Babylon after the judgment of 70 years, then God uh, in his providence and in a mystery, the, the entire descendants of Abraham began to be called Jews, sort for Judah. You can read about that in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Kings 25. During the Babylonian captivity and after the restoration, the name Jew extended to the entire Hebrew nation and not just the southern kingdom. Now, there's a distinction made between Jews and, and uh, their, their uh, um, uh, pagan neighbors and Jews in the rest of the world. Esther 3.6 talks about that. Esther 3.10, Daniel 3.8, Daniel 3.12, Ezra 4.12, 5.1, 5.5 5, talks about the Jews being distinct and different from the surrounding cultures. Now, originally, the people of Abraham were not called Jews. You recognize that, right? They were called Hebrews. But after the exile, the name Jew, which was short for Judah, the southern tribe, began to be extended by themselves and by the outside communities to the entire nation of Hebrews. Now, there are three names used in the New Testament to designate this people. First, they're called Jews. That's as regard to their nationality to distinguish them from Gentiles. Those who are in the line of, of uh, Abraham and not those who were born outside of that line. A second term is um, Hebrews. That's re- with regard to their language, their education, to distinguish them from the Greeks and the Hellenists. 
That's the Jews who spoke the Greek language. And thirdly, they're called Israelites as respects to their sacred privileges as the chosen people of God. What Christians call the Old Testament is technically the Jewish scriptures, the law and the prophets, the Torah. It contains the origin and early history of the Jewish people. It also contains their mandate to honor and obey God called the law. It includes the promise of the Messiah who would not only bless the Jewish people, but would bless the entire world. And the entire trajectory of Judaism from Abraham on was to use the Jewish nation under the allegiance of God to evangelize the rest of the world to the true and living God. Yet when you get to the prophets, both minor and major, the constant indictment is that they failed miserably in that and began being proud of their Jewishness proud of their Judaism, proud that they were favored by God and looked down on everyone who wasn't. They were the elite in their own mind before God. Everyone else was left out. They were inside the covenant. Everyone else was abandoned by God outside the covenant. And instead of inviting people as Jewish evangelism is called proselytizing, proselytes, bringing them into understanding God and his mercy and his grace and the greatness of his kingdom, they began to be prideful. And said, we're okay just being favored by God by ourselves. Us for no more shut the door. The Old Testament reveals that God intended for the Jews to be a mouthpiece for his greatness. An invitation to his worship. They were intended to show the world who God is, what God is like, what God expects. Now, let's fast forward. By the time you get from Abraham to the New Testament, Judaism, Jewishness, has morphed and changed dramatically. It's something much different than its origins. Jews had come to believe that they were special to God because they were Jews. And you got to be careful with that. They were, in one sense, but it wasn't because of their circumcision, it wasn't because of their lineage, it wasn't because of their DNA. It was because of God's faithfulness, but they began presuming on that. They come to believe that they were the only people that God looked at with favor. Even early on, God reminded them they were not any more special in and of themselves than anyone else. I can't wait till we get to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 says, The Lord did not set his love on you, speaking to the nation who's about to go into the, uh, Palestine, he did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peop- other peoples, for you were fewest of all peoples. But God set his love on you because the Lord loved you. Isn't that, reason- isn't that interesting? God loved you. Why? Because he loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God set his love on you because of God's love, not because you were attractive. Still, in the time of Jesus, the Jewish religious system had an elitist view of their own system and an exclusive understanding of the Gentiles. They no longer wanted to evangelize the Gentiles. They wanted to dominate the Gentiles. They wanted to be out from under Roman rule and Greek influence. But can I say this? The understanding that God favored the Jews and was going to rule the earth through them and through their Messiah was a very tough sell during the time 
of Jesus. They were strongly under the rule of the Roman Empire. They were heavily influenced more by Hellenists, by Greeks, than by their own Torah. So what did that do? It pushed them further and further into superstition. And so they began to isolate themselves from the rest of the Gentiles. And then they had levels of seriousness, which you still see today in Orthodox Judaism, levels of seriousness so that you were really favored by God if you were especially pursuing God by all of these external uh, laws that they added to the Torah, including how far can you walk on the Sabbath, what can you eat, how much can you eat, how much can you lift, uh, can you pick your child up, ridiculous things that they added to God's law. By the way, they added those things because they were attainable. They added things that they could do so that they could feel satisfied in the fulfillment of their own commands. They had been generationally, though, disobedient to God. One of the things that is difficult to understand in current Jewish studies and in Jewish evangelism is simply this. Remember when Jesus walked by the fig tree, which represented the Jewish nation? Expecting it to bear fruit, it wasn't. It became a symbol. And what did he do to the fig tree? He cursed it. He cursed the fig tree saying that the Jew and the Jewish nation and Israel from the time of rejecting Jesus as their Messiah until the time of the restoration at the end of the tribulation period is under the curse of God. I think we should have a strong ally in Israel. Politically, it makes sense. But God is not in heaven expecting nations to side with unsaved, cursed Israel for their blessing. Our our goal as Christians, forget Americans, our goal as Christians is to evangelize Jews, not make sure that the pact of 1947 lives on. I'm glad they have the land, but that's not the land they will inherit someday. There are borders that are actually mitigated and limited by ridiculous Palestinian superstition and forces. This is not the fulfillment of God telling the Jews they would inherit the land. Have you read the borders? What's our responsibility to the Jew today? It is to evangelize them. It's to tell them your Messiah has come. He is here. Your hope is not in the land in Israel. Here's the key word, yet. But it will be in the future. What did Paul think of the Jew? What did Paul think of Judaism Well, you're going to find out over the next 15 chapters. He is going to exonerate and encourage and lamblast and disseminate Jewish superstition. There's a difference between the true worship of God from the heart that God intended in the Old Testament for the Jew and the superstitious religiosity that the Jews had inherited in the day of Christ. Namely, and mainly saying that keeping, observing, even having the law was enough to be saved and go to heaven. You could look at the whole book of Romans and the book of Galatians as a polemic against that. Being Jewish, thinking you're favored by God because you have the law is illegitimate. Not the least of which is to mention that possessing it is not as the same as obeying it, which they certainly had not done. So Paul turns in chapter 2 from talking about the 
condemnation of the Gentile pagans who had had the revelation of God given to them instinctively through creation and through their conscience. And they're condemned because they didn't respond to that. And he turns the key in chapter 2 because the Jews are sitting there saying, ha, yeah, they had the revelation of God in nature rejected it. The revelation of God in their heart and rejected it. But we're still favored. Paul says, actually, you had more than that. You had the revelation of God in the law and you rejected that. You are no more favored by God than the homosexual and the disobedient to the parents and the wicked and the inventor of evil in chapter 1. He approaches a violent prejudice in chapter 2 from the Jew in his day in a general way first then applied to the specific Jew afterwards. He opens up everyone to consider the application of the text, not just the Jews. What's the application? What's the text say? Be careful that you don't become a judge of others regarding sin for which you are personally still culpable. There's an important theological distinction that waves its way all the way through chapter 2 of Romans, and that's this. God's judgment is impartial. God has no favorites. God has no special pets. It's impartial. By the way, in these short four, uh, 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 these short five verses, rather, you find a term that comes up seven times. The word judge or judgment pops up in these five verses seven times. This is all about judging and judgment. No matter how favored the Jew had been for receiving the covenant from God to Abraham, they cannot be shielded from God's wrath just because they're children of the promise and not believers in the promise. Here's a simple argument, by the way, if we can get some high altitude. In verses chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, God's wrath is revealed against all those who suppress the truth of God. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, you are without excuse when you judge. Why? Because you practice the very things you condemn. Now, the passage before us is about judging others and passing judgment. Jesus warned about this condemnable action of judging others. Remember what we read just last week in Matthew chapter 7? Do not judge, verse 1, so that you will not be judged. That's pretty simple. Don't judge so you're not judged. For in the way in which you judge, you will be judged by your standard of measure. It will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your own eye? that is in your brother's eye, rather, and don't notice the log that's in your own. How can you say to your brother, let me touch the speck out of your eye. Behold, the log is in your own eye. Then he says, Jesus says, you, what's the word? Hypocrite. First, take the log out of your eye, your own eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly and take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice Jesus doesn't say, don't judge. He says, judge yourself first. Then you're able to give a righteous, proper assessment of others. You can also note, by the way, in that same context we read this morning in verse 15, Jesus says there's also false teachers. You better judge them. The issue is not judging in general. The issue is judging wrongly. And this passage talks about wrongfully judging others from a self-righteous perch. Said another way, evaluation is not the same as denunciation. It's okay to evaluate. It's not okay to denunciate. Now, here in chapter 2, Paul uh, turns his attention to a person who's standing in judgment over the people and the sinners he's just described in chapter 1. 
you see that whole list. You have uh, the big sin that he addresses of homosexuality, but you know, uh, unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, haters of God, slanderers, insolent, arrogant, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, and loving, and merciful. Those kind of people in chapter 2 are condemned by people who think they're a higher a class, a, a step above those in chapter 1. Paul intended for no one, listen, he intended for no one to cheer him on in his assessment of other sin. It's an amazing principle. It's so easy for us to see sinners condemned, sinners assessed, sinners judged, and jump on that bandwagon and say, that's exactly right. They, had what they, they, they got what they had coming to them. We enjoy that judgment. Paul says, no, you're in no place to be the judge. There is only one judge, and it's not you or me. This section informs us to look deeply at ourselves and, our, and recognize our own propensity to sit in judgment over others. Now, let me give you a little head start. This is talking about specifically the Jews who sit in judgment over the Gentiles. We find that out because he says the Jews in verse 17. But what's interesting is he doesn't say the term Jew until verse 17, so it has a specific application and implication for the Jews, but a general application for anyone who would sit in judgment. So, let's look specifically at what it means when guilty sinners pass shameful judgment. In this passage, we're going to look together and find four expectations from passing judgment. Paul says, some of you are going to pass judgment. I want you to know what you should expect if you pass judgment, if you become a judge in your own mind and in your own eyes. What should you expect? He's being very gracious to explain this and tell this to us so that we can repent and run from it. Four expectations from passing judgment. That first expectation is in verse 1, and it's this. You should expect guilt from passing judgment. You should expect guilt. Look at verse 1. Therefore, and therefore says, because God has condemned the actions and the approval of Gentiles, therefore you have no excuses. Whoa, wait, wait. What's the therefore connected to? Therefore you. There's the sinners, therefore you. Who's the you there? Specifically the Jew, but technically anyone who would say, ha, those evil, rascal, wicked sinners that fall under the judgment of God, but I am not in such a class or category. And even Christians can think that about themselves. The world is going to pursue sin and hell, but not me. I'm protected how dare they? That's wicked. Let me sign a petition, start a cause, build a, a, a placard, sign a billboard, make whatever attention I can to sinners because that's not me. Therefore, you, you, the person who passes judgment, has no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment for, and that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Why? How? Because for you who judge, practice the same things. This is interesting. Paul now addresses this group of people who suppose themselves to be morally superior to the sinners in chapter 1. That's the Jews to the Gentiles in chapter 1. That could be the Christian to the unbeliever in our culture. 
Again, we find out in verse 17 that he's talking to Jews. But interestingly, he doesn't specify that it's Jews for 16 verses. I think that's intentional by the Holy Spirit. So he knows this principle is not just the Jews of the first century. It's something that we're all susceptible to. The problem is they had come to believe they were exempt from God's judgment. They were beyond God's judgment, underneath God's favor. Why? Because they were Jewish. This is the old um, adage that we, we understand in Christianity. God has no grandchildren, right? He has no grandchildren. We don't sit in judgment of other sinners because our parents and grandparents, and we go to a church that's Christian, it's what has God done in our own lives and in our own hearts now, just as Paul is asking the Jews, is your heart truly circumcised or just, are you just circumcised on the outside? Are you an externalist and not a true worshiper? In the context, they would have thought they were excused from the judgment of God, and especially the sins listed in chapter 1, because they were protected by their Jewishness. God gives us a pass. That's what they thought. He looks the other way. He protects us from Father Abraham and King David. And even though they didn't obey the law of Moses, they thought the law of Moses protected them from God's judgment. Out of the gate, Paul informs them, guys, you're without excuse. There's no excuse. You will come to the judgment. Isn't it interesting, God's providence? We read Matthew 7 this morning. You will come to the judgment and say, Lord, look at all the stuff we did. He's going to say, what you did in my name is not the issue. What's in your heart? He goes farther. The reason they were without excuse before God is that they placed themselves in the position of judgment alongside God. They condemned the sins of wicked other people and refused to see the blackness of their own heart. But there was a problem here, a big problem. The truth was, this is remarkable. They were actually doing the same things that they were condemning others of doing. We call this today in psychology, we call it projection, right? You're aware of the sins of others because that's the sin that's apparent in your own heart. That's exactly what these people were doing. Oh, I can see that that's wrong, but no one knows that inside the secret recesses of the heart, you are equally guilty of doing and thinking the same. Before we get too critical of these Jews, we need to consider how easy it is for us to do that same issue, that same thing. Ever become judgmental of someone, some sin, and yet you do the same thing in your heart? You do the same thing in secret? Sometimes we, we try to project this judgmental attitude toward that sin to give our heart some catharsis and freedom from guilt because that's what we do in ourselves. A few years ago, I was dealing with a guy who was um, pursuing ministry and he was very legalistic about all the guy-girl relationships around him. Very legalistic. You can't do this, can't do that. Uh, can't hold hands, got to stand three feet. He didn't go that far, but just very critical of everything. Only to find out a few months after this, after dealing with this, he's sleeping with a girl. It's interesting how you're so sensitive to sins and be careful if you're oversensitive to certain sin in criticism and in judgment that it's not taking up residence in your own heart, either in action or in thought or in seed form. 
How about this? You ever condemn things in movies, television, only to secretly enjoy watching that expression of sin? Oh, we'll condemn it in public and watch it in private. Romans 1.32 says, do you give hearty approval to those who sin? I had someone ask me last week, Rick, you're kind of hard on movies, aren't you? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Why do we give sin a pass on a movie screen or on a DVD? Why is it okay there and okay then? I'm not trying to be legalistic about this. I'm just asking the question. Why is it okay there and okay to enjoy when we're watching it, but we would never do that? Actually, you've just done it in your mind by watching it. That's what Romans 1.32 says. We give hearty approval to those who do the things we say we would never do. Isn't being entertained by sin giving hearty approval to it? Call me a legalist all you want. A legalist, by the way, is someone who's trying to be saved by works. I'm not legalistic. But sanctification is trying to be holy by works. That's what we're commanded to do. I'm not more holy than anyone else. I'm probably weaker than anyone else. I can't watch that stuff. I like it. Is that... So hard to confess. It, it titillates your sin. It exacerbates your desire to do the very thing that God commands you not to do. You ever called, parents, your children to live at a higher standard than you're living at? Paul's clear. The judgment that you enact from hypocrisy actually condemns you. First thing you should expect if you're going to pass judgment from verse 1, you've condemned yourself because you practice the same things, is guilt. There's a second expectation, and that's judgment. Judgment from passing judgment. Judgment for passing judgment. Verse 2, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Isn't that interesting? We know. Paul says so much in chapter 1 and so much in this verse about our intuition, our conscience, our instinct of right and wrong, judgment and reward. We know that judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He begins his assessment of the judgmentalists with another appeal to conscience, to our intuition. It's not the first nor is it the last time he's going to talk about this. He's going to talk all the way through this book about the fact that you should know better. Your conscience should tell you better. Not only should your conscience, those who have the law of God and the word of God and the New Testament have even more information. It points to our conscience and says this, you know better. You know better. And it also points to our conscience and says, you're without excuse. You have no way of giving yourself a pass. I mean, look back at chapter 1, verse 19. Wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, verse 18, because that which is known about God is evident where? Within them. It's evident within them. God made it evident to them. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. Look at this next phrase. Being what? Understood, known through that which he's made. Look down at verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God in the heart any longer. Any longer means there was a time, there is a time in everyone's past or conscience where they acknowledge the truth of God. Let me say it again. God doesn't believe in atheists. You become an atheist. You're not born an atheist. You reject God. 
because you have a God to reject. We know, he says in verse 2, and we know. What do we know? Look, the sin is wrong and worthy of judgment. It's not complicated. We know that sin is wrong. We know it's worthy of judgment. We understand this. Think of how this works out. In the instincts of every person, every narrative, every television show, every piece of literature, every epic piece of a, of, of, of a novel that involves a good guy and a bad guy naturally solicits affections in our heart, doesn't it? To want the bad guy to get it. That's, by the way, the subplot of 99% of every television show or novel or screenplay. Show the bad guy. Show him why he's bad. Show him that he should get it. And then you feel good when the bad guy gets it. Why is that naturally and universally embraced? Right here it is. Because in our heart is written this idea that judgment should come on sin. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Key word in this verse is rightly. We know it rightly falls on that. Judgment comes to those who pass judgment. God's justice is perfect. God's justice is righteous. And everyone internally knows it. I know people who evangelize and they say, well, you first have to convince the sinner that he's a sinner. Can I just humbly say, no, 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 you don't. Every man's conscience is guilty. Every man's conscience is convicted. What we offer them is Hope, security, protection from God. Let's go on. Another expectation from passing judgment. Thirdly, deception in passing judgment. You should expect to be deceived. You'd expect, you should expect that deception will get you there, and deception will be your protocol. But do you suppose this, verse 3, O oh man... When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you'll escape the judgment? Really? Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God should, the kindness of God leads to repentance? In verses 3 and 4 now, Paul asks two rhetorical questions for which the readers should know the obvious answer. The problem was they didn't know the obvious answer. Question 1. Should be obvious, but it wasn't. The question itself implies the incredible notion that the hypocrite has a possible escape from judgment. Do you think that you're going to escape judgment when you're guilty of the thing for which you're judging others? You think you're going to escape and pass uh, judgment on others and not be judged by God himself? The answer should be, well, no, I don't think that. But he wouldn't ask the question unless people thought, well, yeah, actually I do. I get a pass. Hypocrisy involves self-lies that are self-believed. Hypocrisy involves self-lies that become self-believed. That's the nature and nurture of hypocrisy. Second question gets at the heart of the issue of self-righteousness and being judgmental on presuming on God. He says, uh, verse 4, do you think lightly of the kindness of the riches, by the way, 
the kindness, the fullness, the wealth of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing, not knowing. There's that intuition. You should have known this, he says, that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. We could stay in verse 4 for a long time. Jim Boyce did a whole uh, series of sermons just on this verse. The attributes of God flow out of this verse. There are three highlighted, kindness, tolerance, and patience. They're all cousins. Don't you know that God's kind? He gives, you breathe today. You should be dead and in hell. He's been kind and gracious toward you. Tolerant. God is tolerant of your sin by letting you live, but he will not be tolerant of sin in the final judgment. And patience. This is that, that my favorite Hebrew word, God's long-nosed, right? The Hebrew word for patience means it's His nose doesn't scrunch up, get angry. We're going to get to Hebrews 6 in a few weeks. Hebrews 6.10, it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. You're going to inherit this land. You didn't do anything except walk into it. God destroys Uh, your enemies, and gives you walls and cities and houses to live in. You did nothing to inherit and nothing to build. Houses full of all goods. They're going to be fully furnished, which you did not fill. Hewn cisterns, which you did not dig. A whole water system. Vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant. Food, and you eat and are satisfied. When you come and that happens, Moses said, then, verse 12, watch yourself. When you inherit the blessings of God, when you get what you didn't deserve, when you enjoy God's blessings, be careful. You better watch yourself. Why? That you do not forget that the Lord, you do not forget the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. That's what Paul's saying in these two questions. God's given you all this and you you forget? You don't get it? Most of you had breakfast this morning. Some of you had a blessing, had a prayer, and thanked God for that breakfast. I can't say this with absolute surety, but can I ask you this? Any time during the last 24 hours, did any one of us ask God to feed us? thinking that if he didn't, we would go hungry? Did any of us really pray, give us, Lord, bread today, our daily bread? So easy for us to throw these people under the bus, but how many blessings of God do we take for granted and we forget the Lord? Paul is saying, you're deceived. You just think you got all this because you're a good guy, a good gal. You are deceived. Do you not recognize this? Now look at the response. In verse, at the end of verse 4, don't you know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That obviously works in a spiritual dimension, but can we borrow from that for just a minute? The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Do you understand the, the epic, widespread, nuclear implications and applications of that for friendship and for parenting? You want to lead your children to repentance? Kindness does that. You want to call them to do what's right? Kindness. Look, all of us know what it's like to give the lecture, don't we? 
Ask my sons. I am I'm an expert, extraordinaire lecturer in the moment of shepherding. There's a place for that. There's a place for that. <clears throat> How does God pull us and lead us to repentance? Is the gospel this? Is the gospel this? You are in such trouble with me. Or is the gospel, God's to love the whole world. He gave his son. So kind. This is a parenting principle that we draw from God. You cannot bad attitude someone into a good attitude. You need to smile and be happy right now. Okay, Dad. Just like you, huh? The kindness of God leads us to repentance, and the kindness of others lead to repentance as well. We are so deceived. Presuming on God's blessing. Let me just think for a moment. You've heard the gospel. You know how many people read Romans 1 who haven't? You're in a church that has loving people, that teaches God's word, that disciples in God's truth. You're in a building that none of you built, teaching a Bible that none of you wrote. Do you stop? Will you Baptist for a second? Count your many blessings. I love that phrase. Name them one by one. Here's a lunch exercise for you. Count your blessings. How about this? Just you could you right now you could say, I'm gonna draw a 10-foot circle around me and count the blessings, and you would be here the rest of the afternoon by just describing what's in the 10-foot zone. Paul tells these Jews, you're passing judgment when you're doing the same thing for which you're passing judgment, and you don't realize God gave you every advantage. He gave you every advantage. And instead of absorbing that in the heart, you've now turned that into a gavel to hammer people around you. We should not be a guilty sinner passing shameful judgment. You know what the gospel is? Man, I'd love to tell you about Christ and give a defense for the hope that's where. And the Bible doesn't even say that. Hope that's in the gospel doesn't even say that. You know what it says? I want to give you a defense for the hope that's where. Let me, God, save me. If you don't know an evangelistic program, an evangelistic strategy, if you don't know a five-point outline, here's, what, here, here's, the, here's the way to evangelize. Just tell somebody, I just got to tell you what God did in my heart. I was going to hell, and he saved me by his, his crucifying his only son. Well, who does that? What, what religion invented by man comes up with the concept of killing the father's son in the place of rebels? What is that? Buddhism doesn't do that. Hinduism doesn't do that. Islam doesn't do that. Just tell people, I, I don't know the Bible cover to cover. I'm not a scholar, but I can tell you this. The blessings of God have been manifest in the gospel in my life. Can I tell you about that? Be careful and ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you. That hope. I'm not going to hell. You know what that's called? That's good news. That's really, really eternal, long-lasting, never-diminishing good news. 
But the point here, Paul's telling these Jewish hypocrites and those who are in our category as well, is it possible that you've presumed on the blessing of God and interpreted that as God's winking at you and elbowing you and saying, good job, without seeing that, just like the Israelites, you didn't build these houses. You've inherited all this. This is a blessing. Now, here's the challenge. There are four expectations for passing judgment. And the most important important one is the fourth one, which we have no time to talk about today. Ah, honey, I tried. I was telling Kim, I said, I think I can get through it. Um, but I'm about halfway through my notes. Because this last point in verse 5 is so important. And God's grace, that's what we get to do is look at verse 5. Let's just read it very briefly. Because of your stubbornness, because of your unrepentant heart, you, the self-righteous, the judge, you are actually storing up wrath. Wrath is used twice in this verse. You're storing up wrath for... Others around you know for who? For yourself. In the day of wrath. And the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In our next study, we are going to take a trip to the future and see a righteous judge coming from heaven with his robe dipped in blood who sits on the great white throne and dispenses rewards. No, he dispenses judgment to go to hell. We've just touched the issues in verse 5, but the question, the challenge is always this. Are you a judge? Are you one of the guilty sinners passing shameful Judgment. I want to give a really special quick appeal to a group of people who may be sitting in the room today, okay? We talk about the gospel a lot. We we evangelize people. We tell them about how they can come to know Christ, and that's important, especially those who have never heard Christ. But can I ask you this? We read uh, Matthew chapter 7 today. Providentially, on the same Sunday, we would study Romans 2, 1 to 5. I tremble with fear. I've wept real tears over the possibility that some of you who come weekly, who are deeply involved, who've served in countless ways, will find your way all the way to the judgment, saying, ah, it's going to be great to go past the Lord into heaven, and he's going to say, No, 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 you don't get it. Depart from me, I never knew you. I can't imagine the shock of thinking your whole life long, your whole life long, all the way to the judgment of Christ, thinking I'm going to get heaven and being turned away to hell. Why? Because it looked good out here, but was never real in here. Please, There is no amount of pride worth eternity. If you have been in that category, I want you to run to Christ. You asking us to doubt our salvation, Rick? No, I'm asking you to do what 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says. Test yourself. 
to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself that Christ is in you unless you fail the test? I can represent our elders right now and say there is no greater fear but that we have goats among the sheep. Diotrephes or Judas or Demas who look really good at first but would not pass the judgment because their faith is insincere and external only. Please, please don't rest on your parents, grandparents, others around you. Do you understand and know Christ? Is he real to you? Is he, is he the Lord and master of your life or is he a part of your life? Jesus will never be a part of your life. He will only be the point of your life. If you have questions about that, prayer room is going to be open in a few minutes and we'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to talk to you about that. I know it's heavy. and Yeah, I'm trying to scare you. Fear is a good thing. Test yourself and pass the test. But please, please, if anyone at Mission Road Bible Church showed up and said, Lord, Lord, look at what we did at Mission Road, and he said, get out of my presence and depart into hell, that's a thought too much to even bear. Don't let your pride exclude you from eternity. Father, we are humbled that you gave us traction to get through these first four four verses, but verse 5 really gets at the issue of unrepentance and a stubborn heart. Open the eyes of those who may be self-deceived. Open the eyes of those who are hypocritical and don't recognize it, who have begun believing their own self-lies We see these propensities in all of our hearts, Father. Guard anyone in this room. Please prick the conscience and the heart of anyone who is in this as a lifestyle who would have the possibility of saying, Lord, to you and being dismissed into hell. Grant faith in the heart. Rob the assurance, please. Lord, as a thief, rob the assurance of those who have a mere external religiosity and not a heartfelt, Christ-centered devotion to the gospel. Protect us from being judges. Convict us when we are. And help us to be holy and sanctified for your glory and, Lord, we know for our good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.